to the Scaling Japan podcast, a podcast about how to grow your business from $100,000 and beyond, and beyond in the land of the rising sun. Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Batino. And on today's episode, we have Skylar Alexandra Cole. She is an associate at Incubate Fund one of the largest early stage focused venture capital firms in Japan. She is also a founder of Startup Co-Creation Community that aims to curate genuinely exciting opportunities, share startup knowledge, and host events for its globally minded members. We are doing a two-part series on venture capital, and this is episode one, and we'll focus on understanding VCs better. The second episode will focus more on raising money. Okay, Skylar, good to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I definitely know you. A lot of startups know you, but <laughs> for those who have, haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, especially in person, could you please introduce yourself? I'm Skylar. I'm originally from the U.S. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and came to Japan about three and a half years ago. After graduating from Stanford for undergrad, I got some funding and founded a food and health-related social enterprise that was really dedicated to creating a marketplace for socially and culturally competent food and health resources. I have experience in the U.S. and Japan working at startups, think tank, and venture capital firms. In the U.S., I worked for the family office of a serial entrepreneur, a deep tech startup, and a food procurement startup. In Japan, I earned my master's in public policy at the University of Tokyo, where I primarily looked at innovative funding strategies for diverse SMEs and startups. And then mm -hmm. I joined Incubate Fund, where I am now. And at Incubate, I lead our global fund strategy, and I'm always on the lookout for exciting pre-seed and C-stage companies across industries. So that is a very impressive background, especially doing research that in your post-bachelor studies at, uh, mm -hmm. or I think, your, was it your master's studies at University yeah, of Tokyo? Master's, exactly. And it wasn't that that made me choose you as the guest. Actually, one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on the podcast is I feel that you're actually one of the few VCs who I meet that I kind of like, well, this person's very long-term. And what uh, I mean by the term long term is everyone has only has good things to say. And like, even if things don't work out, like you don't invest, everyone always has a positive impression, just the way you interact with people. And so oh. like, I would say that you're one of the few long term VCs. Wow. I'm so honored to hear that. I so appreciate that. And that's something I really aim to do is whether or not I can invest directly or provide an immediate support. I want to build great relationships so that at any point in the future when there is an opportunity to support further, it's possible. So I really appreciate you saying that. I think the two people have said that, like you have stood out to me and also I think, not sure if you've met Sabrina from Monozakuri. Ah, no, but I know of Sabrina. Oh yeah. I have really positive things to say about the both of you. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure everyone doesn't want to hear just praises, but I did want to... <laughs> get that out. I do like to celebrate people who I think deserve celebration. That means so much you, Tyson, because you're so active and supportive and such an incredible person in this ecosystem. So that means doubly as much. So thank you. My pleasure. And so, yeah, so for this episode, I've met a lot of startup founders and I think there's a lot of confusion about 
everyone's like, I want to raise money. But kind of the first question that comes to me is like, but do you actually understand VCs? The money question comes before I understand the VC question. So I like to help a lot of the startups out there. So when they actually reach out to VCs, they can actually make a much better first impression. Definitely. I think that's so important because I think as a founder, as a founding team, you're so focused on what you're building and excited about what you're doing that I think it can sometimes be hard to understand exactly who you're talking to or kind of step into the shoes of the perspective of the VC. So I'm really happy to be sharing about this. I'm glad you also meant the counterpoint that it's, you have so many things to work on. It's like oh, something new. uh, (laughs) It's very helpful to reach your goal. So definitely something that should be on founders' minds. So I'll say there's a lot of confusion on, you know, the stages of startups and more importantly, what is a venture backable company? My first question is, what does early stage really mean for a startup? Right. So while this may seem like a basic term, the ways to find a perceived can vary. For me, I typically consider early stage to be anything up to a series A financing round. You have a product, a stable business operations, and hopefully generating revenue. However, you will see another common definition was basically to define pre-seed and seed kind of in its own category, and then to consider series A, B as early stage. I think that's a little less common. So I think it's safe to say kind of up until series A is early stage. And I think sometimes for like seed or pre-seed, they'll just stick a very, right? Like a very early stage. (laughs) Yes. Continue (laughs) to qualify it a little bit more. Just to set the context though, what is the difference between pre-seed, seed, and series A? Typically at a pre-seed, you have an idea. Um, You may not have any product, but you have some conviction that you should pursue it. When you're looking for kind of a pre-seed funding round, you're really looking to build your MVP, except that you may not have one. Once you get to seed stage, you're more looking at you have an MVP, even if it's you know, it still could be a little shaky, but at that point you have something you can work with and you want to continue iterating and seeking kind of product market fit. Then for series A, you have a stable business model, you found product market fit, and you're looking to really grow from there. Excellent. I think that was a very nice way of summarizing it. What types of business models do venture capital firms invest in? I'd love to break that down first kind of generally, and then I can talk a little bit about what we look at at IF. A common term used to describe the types of companies and business models that VCs invest in is venture backable. That basically means that a team or a company has a scalable solution to a problem that can generate exponential or outsized returns. Embedded in that is the ability to grow fast and be defensible, meaning that the idea or business can't be easily duplicated. Is that VCs are in part driven by the incentive to at least return their fund or better get some multiple of their fund. Of course, VCs have different investment strategies and different goals, whether that's investing in diverse founders or in certain areas or geographies. But what's similar across VCs is this desire to return their fund. So let's say you are a firm, you have a hundred million dollar fund, I'll say dollars, and say later the company you invested in is worth three billion. You own 10%, you've gotten a 300 million return, and that's three times your fund size. So you've hit a home run, and that's great investment. And what, I guess, more concretely does it mean to kind of be on the trajectory to have that type of return? And this can vary, but at least at IF, and we don't have necessarily a hard and fast rule about 
what revenue you should be generating. But if we can reasonably expect that you can earn 60 to $100 million in annual recurring revenue, that's a great sign. That can definitely vary depending on the firm. I mean, that's something that I think that in a conversation you can ask about and what type of revenue should be exciting moving forward. But that's maybe a benchmark for IF. I do want to note that being venture backable or not being venture backable does not mean you don't have a great idea. VC isn't a fit for every idea in every business, and that's okay. Lifestyle business and SMEs are extremely valuable both to the individual and to society, even if they aren't venture backable. But if you are looking for venture funding, these are some things you should consider. I've heard the number 100 million annual yearly revenue appear time and time again. Seems that IF is not the only one. Kind of similar note, but what types of companies do venture capitalists avoid? Some VCs may avoid certain industries such as vice industries, you know, alcohol, drugs, gambling, industries that they don't have particular expertise or ability to support. This could be you know, frontier tech or deep tech. You're typically investing in kind of SaaS solutions and just businesses that don't align with their thesis. I think in pursuing funding, venture funding, it's so important to find firms that are aligned with your goals as a founder in your industry and you could have a great idea, but if you don't connect with the right kind of firm, then it's likely a no-go. Do VCs still fund direct-to-consumer businesses? While it's not as common, some do. For example, Incubate Fund. We have over 200 portfolio companies out of our uh, flagship. Maybe two or three are 2C. But there are some out there, <laughs> for sure. Cool. Now that we got kind of the general questions, just to provide some context, yeah. I'd like to dive into some questions to understand what's on a VC's mind or what they go through. Like, there's not much content out there, so I'm really looking forward to dive into these next questions. But my first one is, how many companies actually reach out to you monthly? Well, you know, it definitely varies depending on kind of events I go to or things like that. Overall, at IF, our interactions or conversation with over 2,000 a year, we're in Japan. And so the market is, well, still nascent and growing. So this numbers sound smaller than in the U.S., but that's still, you know, really significant part of the ecosystem. And with me joining the team, really hoping to expand that to be able to reach even more kind of foreign founding teams and just people who are interested in engaging with the ecosystem. Gotcha. And do VCs really check pitch decks sent through their websites? <laughs> Okay, so it depends on the VC. Some VCs will explicitly make a point to share that on their website if they do. Like they'll say, oh, we check every single one through this form. But I actually don't know who manages the info email address. So that's not how I would recommend your deck to be viewed. It's definitely much better to connect with an actual person versus kind of the general email address. For those of you who have not seen it yet, but in our investor list, of venture capital firms who have already invested in foreign entrepreneurs, which we produce at Scale in Japan podcast in our version three, which should be coming out probably in April 2023. We've actually contacted these companies and we've listed ones that have not responded through contact through their website. And this doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that maybe you might need an introduction. <laughs> yes. I think the idea of a warm introduction is an interesting concept because VC is such a relationship-based industry and it's very important, but, you know, there should be, you know, clear avenues as well to share ideas. So 
you know, hopefully this all helps founders get more meetings. <laughs> and what is the proportion of warmly introduced companies that VCs end up doing due diligence on versus code inquiry form? <laughs> I don't know the exact percentage, but if you do have a warm introduction, I do think that supports getting eyes on your deck more of a guarantee that someone's looking at it. But I will say that companies and founders that have reached out through say LinkedIn or kind of other platforms have gotten meetings and have gotten invested. It's not entirely uncommon. And I think what helps, and this is still reaching out to a person, so not necessarily a form, but even if you don't necessarily have a warm introduction, really having a strong and I would say approachable, but respectful message to whoever you're reaching out to, that can also go a long way. Because I mean, VCs, we are incentivized to want to connect with great ideas and find great ideas before someone else. So we're not entirely disincentivized to reach out or to respond. But really, I think it's about your execution that can change your success in that way. And I've met tons of wonderful VCs. And every one of them, I've had to send up follow up messages. Yes. And even to yeah. friends, don't take it personal. Exactly, exactly. Don't take it personally. I think that VCs do get a lot of messages and that's definitely not an excuse. And I think what's hard about being a venture capitalist is saying no. Oh, well, sometimes no can be easy, but if you want to say no, but you're not even 100% sure that it's a no, that's a really hard situation. And not now or maybe it's really the hardest response. And so... If a VC doesn't have an exact immediate answer, then that can also prolong the time it takes to get a response, which you shouldn't take that personally, not at all. It's not a reflection of you as an individual. It's so many other variables, and that should not deter you from you know, continuing to pursue your idea. Yes, I do hear a lot of founders complain about being ghosted or not receiving any responses, but do you have any other information that could help them understand why I think one thing to remember that VCs are human too, and they're not perfect beings. And like I mentioned, it's hard to say no and potentially close a door to a potentially amazing opportunity, even if the VC doesn't see it in that moment. But that's still you know, not entirely an excuse. Um, and it's important to be respectful of founders' time. I do think, though, that it's great to have a follow-up. So even if you don't get a response, I would absolutely send a follow-up. It's rare, I think, that if you have to fold more than a few times that you'll get a response in kind of the immediate future. But if a VC doesn't respond after a couple of months, revisit when you have a major update. Um, that could be maybe six months down the line or longer. But I've definitely seen cases and you know heard of cases where nothing happened initially, but by continuing to remain respectful, sending substantive follow-up has led to an investment down the line. So definitely don't be afraid of a follow-up. I often see people try to email VCs that are higher up, like, you know, they try to go straight for the partner Yeah, <laughs> with yes. the logic that they have more decision-making power, but does this actually make a difference? So the exact efficacy will vary by firm and kind of the hierarchical structure. In Japan, VCs do tend to have relatively smaller teams. I would say there aren't so many kind of divisions between the final decision-makers in the U.S., you can get stuck definitely with a more junior member that isn't really able to elevate your company to a more senior team member. But for my team, for example, I have a direct line of communication between myself and the partner I work for. Part of engaging in my sourcing involves being a filter and elevating the top companies or the companies I'm most excited about. But companies that I introduce get discussed with the team. So you do have a direct line 
Gotcha. That makes sense. So there's maybe just two layers as opposed to in the U.S. where there might be three layers where you're speaking to the person who has to talk to their manager and then that person talks to the partner and let's right. say more filters. So Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. One of the common challenges I see with my consulting clients is not having any staff internally who can drive marketing strategy and execution to the next level. This really limits the growth trajectory of a company, especially for a leader like you that wants to go from 30 million to 500 million yen a year and does not have the time to spend years on learning through trial and error. To solve this problem, I'm launching a marketing agency that can help companies like yours to increase leads and closing rates through SEO, Google Maps, content marketing, and websites that convert. Head over to scalingyourcompany.com and book a free consultation. Let's talk about what your business needs are, where your current strategy is letting you down, and how we can help you see real results with the methods I've successfully implemented at multiple companies myself. Thank you. Okay. And I guess sometimes another thing I've heard is if the VC is not interested in the startup, why does the VC keep mentioning to please keep us updated? Kind of like I mentioned earlier, the almost deals are the hardest. And I think part of thinking is maybe by the next round or by the next update, a VC can possibly gain more conviction around something they're unsure about. But it's definitely very frustrating on the part of the founder. It takes time. It takes effort to keep updated. But I do think in the sake of relationship building, it's great to kind of keep communication lines open. Don't burn any bridges for sure. And I've heard this one many times, actually. Like, you know, I've been cold email or mm-hmm. a VC reached out to me at an event mm-hmm. and to have a funding meeting, but only to ghost me after my reply. That's definitely a problem. And it could be a few things. So it could be some of the things I mentioned, but it could be that the person realized the company wasn't a fit or they got busy or just another project got in the way. But definitely don't take it personally. And I think that, you know, everyone has to realize we're all human and kind of be respectful to each other. They're probably looking to make some final deals, but they made the final deals and they closed the fund. Yeah, so that's absolutely possible as well. One reason why VC can say no or not continue the conversation is because they just don't have any more capital deployed at that time. You will hear people say, well, if they wanted to invest, they would do anything they could to invest. But sometimes it really isn't just possible at that time period. And I think it's important to, on the VC side, to be transparent about what they're actually able to do. And if they are really excited, provide something concrete, future plans. I've been kind of curious about this myself. Let's say answer if you can, but like what types of pressure do you receive from the higher ups? So I don't know if this is necessarily pressure per se, but at least with our investment strategy, we only invest in a small number of companies and we have to have really strong conviction that the idea and team will be a success. And what that means for me is that at least I don't feel like I can just casually introduce a startup. I really have to be knowledgeable and have my own conviction about a company that I'm excited in that I think we should invest in, which means I have to get to really know the founder and what they're building in kind of their area. I definitely feel that pressure for elevating a company. I don't know if that's maybe pressure I put on myself or maybe just a function of having this investment strategy, but I definitely feel that. Yeah, kind of similar, but what types of businesses are hard to introduce to your bosses? As a firm that primarily invests in Japan incorporated companies, it's hard to introduce companies that 
either are incorporated in Japan or don't have some office or establishment in Japan, even if they are amazing, which is definitely frustrating for me personally, but also companies that don't have a clear Japan angle. And this typically applies to companies led by foreign founders that want to build in Japan or be based in Japan for you know, a variety of reasons. Japan's a great place to live and that's definitely shouldn't be underestimated. But if the team is willing to really figure out an angle and then it doesn't have to be a problem. I don't say it can be a deterrent up front, but I think if you are seeking investment, there has to be some sort of connection, at least for us, as to why Japan or a strong answer about why Japan. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And I think the answer I've heard is that for the venture capital firm, they want to be confident they can actually provide support to you. Yes. So yes. if target market isn't Japan, then, you know, it's pretty much just money. Right, definitely. I'm so glad you brought that up because a piece of advice I would love to share to founders when they're getting ready to pitch is to include why you want to work with that investor. And that's more important, I think, for firms like IF because we have such a hands-on strategy. I mean, meeting with every single portfolio company every week, so very hands-on. And so for us, it's really important to see, okay, so yes, you know, you want investment, but why, what kind of support do you want from us and why do you think this is a good match? For firms that don't necessarily have as much hands on support, that doesn't have to be as much of a conversation. But if you're looking maybe for your lead investor or for a firm to provide hands on support, being clear about that yourself is really important and I think can go a long way. There's a lot of various positions in the VC firm, mm -hmm. like I've heard analyst, researcher, associate, partner. Could you kind of give us an overview of the positions? This can be very confusing. And I think even as venture capitalists, it can be hard for us to understand across firms kind of what certain roles mean and what responsibilities are involved in certain roles. So don't worry, founders, we are also confused <laughs> to a certain extent. But I will talk about some of the kind of typical investment track roles. And there are other roles such as legal operations and other roles, but I'll talk about kind of investment track roles. So the most junior person is typically an analyst. They may support kind of writing memos about companies, maybe doing some sourcing, but kind of junior, kind of learning the ropes. An associate is typically more senior than an analyst, but I think across geographies, it can kind of vary and mm -hmm. maybe responsibilities could be similar. But at least for an associate, it's still a junior role. It's more deal-centric, and there could be a variety of responsibilities from sourcing, due diligence, thesis creation, portfolio support. So it really ranges. And then within that, you have a senior associate. What is a senior associate? And it can go on from there. Kind of a clear distinction above an associate is a principal. Uh, sometimes I think this is also could be called director, but I see it more typically as a principal. Mm -hmm. These are junior deal professionals with some more responsibility. They typically won't have the final decision-making ability, but there's definitely more responsibility involved. And then you have your partners, which there's a lot of variety in what that can actually mean. But clearly at the top is either the managing director or the general partner. They're most senior and have the final decision-making ability. So you may be talking to an associate or a principal, but at the end of the day, you have to get a yes from, depending on the structure of the firm, one or more general partners. And... What do VCs look for in candidates for VC mm -hmm. positions? Actually, this is one thing I love about venture capital is that it benefits from having people of different backgrounds working in the space. So what's key to finding a role or securing a role, I believe, is having some unique value add to the firm that you want to work with or the firms you want to work with. 
This can come in the form of knowledge in an area, a network, access to a certain network, or some other experience or insight. As far as career trajectory or kind of other roles a person may have had, that can vary. And a lot of typical roles or pathways are from kind of investment banking or consulting or being a founder. There's a wide range of backgrounds that come into venture capital. While I can understand it can be maybe frustrating to someone from the outside, I think it's a great opportunity to be able to invest in a wide range of ideas. Gotcha. And I think a lot of companies say like, aren't there more people with entrepreneurship experience? That can definitely be, I think, as a founder, hard to hear from someone who hasn't had certain experiences, certain founder experiences. And I think that, you know, it's definitely valid and, and it's important for VCs to have an understanding of what the founder is going through. I don't think it's an absolute requirement to scale to certain company. What I think is important and something that a VC can provide with various background experiences is an ability to have a wide view of what's happening in an industry or a particular space. Because the entrepreneur founders focus so much on exactly what they're building that they aren't able to kind of have the capacity to see everything else. So that's something VCs can provide. And that experience and benefit can come from someone with a variety of backgrounds. I've talked to a lot of, you know, like experienced VCs as well. And even though they've not had entrepreneur experience, they obviously had pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is key. Pattern recognition to a certain extent, what contributes to being able to grow X or, or contribute to building a great team, you know, it's great to have patterns recognition for that. So definitely that's a key component. Just kind of think of like my entrepreneurship friends. Mm-hmm. The ones that I know that are in VCs, typically they're the ones who have exited mm-hmm. and they're kind of chilling. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm fine with not making another startup full time. intense. <laughs> The ones that didn't exit, you know, they're trying to exit again. <laughs> yes. yes. So I think just numerically as well, I actually think it might potentially be impossible to fill it with just entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think it's important to have entrepreneurs making investment decisions. But I think, too, there's a chance of kind of the bias of being a founder. And if you were in the trenches, you know how hard it is. But I think it sometimes helps to have a different perspective because, I mean, we are all biased in some way and that can cut our judgment. However, we happen to be biased. One bias I could think of is I really like the idea. And if I was executing, it would be a success. But yes, yes, yes. Maybe this team might actually not be the right team. (laughs) Exactly. No, that's so crucial because you can see the potential and what you could contribute to something. But that's not always the reality, like you said. So that's crucial for sure. So yeah, and it also seems like very few VCs have a research team. With that, like, you know, what is their main source or process for, you know, really understanding new technology, mm-hmm. market trends, and innovations in Japan? More often than not, it's up to the analysts, associates, and principals to really create VCs and look into markets. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, more senior members bring in their knowledge and expertise as well. But kind of the really digging deep and doing the research will fall more to those roles I mentioned previously. Some firms will separate their team by verticals. So mm-hmm. then you have a clear distinction of who is delving into what, you know, that varies by firm. Gotcha. So some people might be working on hardware, maybe mobility, marketplace. Exactly. Now that makes perfect sense. 
Yes, I guess another one, it's, it seems also seems that, you know, VCs, very few of them actually send out like publicly on their funds performance. Mm-hmm. How can startups, you know, really engage more effectively with them and, you know, really understand them when it's quite hard to understand their inner workings and performance? Venture capital is overall opaque by design. There are players that are really trying to push for more transparency, like we're doing now. After you finish listening to this podcast, definitely read Venture Deals by Brad Feld and, and Jason Mendelson. The tagline of the book is to be smarter than your lawyer and your venture capitalist. And that book will definitely help you uh, along your <laughs> path to do that and just empower you to really understand the VC perspective and to be strategic about how you engage with venture capitalists. And I think as far as better understanding the performance, it is really hard to get that information. But I think, like I mentioned before, building relationships and being willing to nurture those over time is very important. Would you say that book would also apply to Japan as well? Yeah. So while definitely the Japan ecosystem has its nuances and differences, the book is an incredible foundation for venture capital that definitely still applies to what you're building in Japan. Maybe some of the numbers and estimations are different at certain points, but I think this book is almost timeless and it's a solid primer for anyone looking to build. Gotcha. Let's say there's foreign founders in Japan. Mm -hmm. Where can they actually get more assistance before actually reaching out to VCs? I honestly recommend starting to build a relationship as soon as possible in some way. That doesn't mean you're you're reaching out to say, oh, I want you to invest. But being able to open that line of conversation, I keep hammering, build the relationship, build a relationship. But I really do mean that because you start to get to know someone as a human, especially at the early stage, that's important. You get to know the VC, the VC gets to know you. But if you're looking for external resources, I would say if there are other founders you're able to talk to, kind of ideally founders that have gotten funding from firms that you want to work with, build those relationships as well and reach out to whatever local kind of organizations that can provide some pitch support or just some forms of advisorship. So definitely kind of engage with the local resources that you have as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about startup co-creation community? We are a community dedicated to creating and sharing generally exciting opportunities and knowledge for kind of the globally minded group of startup and startup related people in Japan. And what does globally minded mean? I think that's really our proxy for people who are open to kind of a more global perspective, working with diverse people and being able to be, I guess, challenged and pushing, I guess, past some of the status quo set we experience in the ecosystem now. Working with us, we have clear channels to get support on your startup, get advice on your startup, share resources, not just related to venture capital funding, but through grants and other funding resources, pitch competitions, jobs. You can share jobs, all those things you can find in this community. And really, we aim to provide a safe space for founders, potential founders, and just any startup-related people. Because Like I say, relationships are important, but trust is so important and social capital is so important. So we really aim to connect people and build that social capital through multiple opportunities through the community. Would it apply to most stages or do you think it would really help people like in the pre-seed or seed? Is there like a certain stage that you're focusing on helping? We don't explicitly have a certain uh, stage that we focus on, but I do think that early stages, getting started, kind of iterating, 
the up to series A, that's kind of our sweet spot, but we do aim to be able to provide exciting events and opportunities and interactions with kind of local and global players that could be beneficial to founders and teams at the later stages as well. Cool. Then I know in Tokyo, I think you have the Tokyo Startup Lunch Club. Yes, yes, absolutely. Francisco. Yeah, Francisco's a good dude. Met, yeah, I met him yeah. in Yokohama. Nice. Also, I think in Osaka, I think Dwayne and yes, Asa. Definitely. I don't remember the name, but if you look up Asa, probably think Dronex, or if you look up Dwayne Grek, I think it's... Yes. They're also them. all members of the startup co-creation community, oh, so cool. we, we all talk and definitely engage in different ways. Excellent. I think it's G-R-E-C-H, Grek. So Dwayne Grek and uh, Kobe, you have the Innovation Dojo, yeah. which is also good, which yeah. I've attended one of their events as well. Thank you, 500 this. Global, for yes, 500. sending me there. <laughs> Yay, Aichi. There's so many things happening. I mean, Tokyo is exciting, but there's so many things happening in other cities. So I think there's some good content there. And uh, also I recommend Scaling Japan podcasts and just our Scaling Your Company blog posts. We got a ton of topics like, you know, like accountant Mm -hmm. or doing sales in Japan. Pretty much all aspects of running a business. Uh, We have a lot of free content. Free content, I've used it myself. Any other things to share with foreign entrepreneurs in Japan to maybe Mm -hmm. understand the VC landscape in Japan? Since it's such a small ecosystem, a lot of the players do know each other, but there is still a bit of a siloing effect and some challenges, especially for kind of foreign founders, I think, to sometimes connect and find kind of really aligned founders. That's not so different to other places. Well, I do think there are a lot of great pitch opportunities, whether that's through Detro has some opportunities, Founders Institute, Japan, we love them for sure. And then, of course, kind of working through, at least in Tokyo, should be a startup support. That's a great resource and ways to get connected. But I think going to pitch competitions and if possible to see what firms will be judges at those competitions or, or competitions that they frequent are great. Doing some sort of event or being able to partner with the community, maybe start co-creation or some other great communities and kind of co-working spaces. I think that's a great opportunity to kind of have a publicly facing event so that you can bring a crowd and, and get your company seen. In our next session, our interview with Skylar, we're going to really talk more about raising money, traction, or why do VCs reject companies? What are they looking for in founding teams? talking a little bit more about the pitch deck but I guess the last thing with this one is I'll definitely recommend and we're going to post in the show notes checking out our list of Japanese VCs who have already invested in foreigners yes so you can focus your attention on those who have already invested in foreign companies and we've also included it's probably not exhaustive list but a lot of the companies that are run by foreigners who are on that list And also, anyone listening to this, if you have additional companies or you know more VCs, definitely uh, reach out to us and provide more data. And with everyone's help, we can provide the most comprehensive and up-to-date resource. That is power. So, Skylar, where can people learn more about you? 
So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, Skyler, S-C-H-Y-L-E-R, Cole, C-O-L-E. Also feel free to join Startup Co-Creation Community. We're approaching 300 members in our Slack mm. with a variety of backgrounds and experiences and just really, you know, safe place for you to share your ideas and challenges. So maybe you could share the link in the description. I will join myself, which I haven't yes, please, yet. please, please. I will put the link also in our notes. And what is the difference between the community versus maybe like the, the hacker news community, Tokyo? Oh, you know, the hacker news community is also a, a really great community. I've been in, in the Slack for a while. In addition to kind of providing the venture startup focused events, we focus on social aspect as well. Like, for example, I'm teaching a yoga class in the park in two weeks. Feel free to join. But we really believe in being able to make connections, not just in kind of kind of the tech and startup related. That's great. But we are kind of multifaceted in different ways. And we hope to uh, share that. And hopefully that supports opportunities and synergies for future venture building. You probably heard that Slack sound in the background. That's probably me joining the group right now. Oh, we have a new member. <laughs> And yes, I look forward to the second recording. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. I can't wait for the next one.